Hello, darling. Nice to see you. It's been a long time. Oh, you were not expecting me to start off my first podcast in what feels like forever with some good old Conway Twitty. And if you have any taste in music at all, or you watch Family Guy, you know who Conway Twitty is. But, um... Hello, ladies, gentlemen, and cat people. It has been a long time. Um, I don't have a great explanation for why it's been a long time. You know, it's just this year has been rough, like unprecedentedly rough on a lot of people. And well, I mean, me, not so much, but like it's a yeah. Let's just say that lots been going on, but um, this podcast isn't like a personal blog or anything, so I don't really feel like I have to say <laughs> what's been going on. Uh, so yeah, but all all that aside, I mean, I've been doing uh, relatively fine, and um, I'm trying to get back onto a better more positive, more God-focused um, path in my life than I may have been doing so recently. Um, so that's a quick recap with me. Um, if you remember from last time, uh, I wanted to start doing um, a focus on charities uh, to give people an option to donate to. And remember, these are char- charities that I have or will donate to, um, in the past. Uh, so I would never ask you guys to donate to anything that you feel, uh, if you feel led to, uh, anything that I wouldn't. Um, today I have picked, uh, Rafa house, uh, as the charity or Rafa international, um, is what I guess they're calling it on their website right now. Um, so a bit, bit of background on what Rafa house is and what they do. Uh, this, uh, organization was started in Joplin. Actually. Um, I went to school, uh, the, the woman who founded it, I went to school with her daughter, like way, way, way long ago, like pre pre K elementary, uh, long ago. And so um, this is their little who we are blurb on their website. Rafa International provides aftercare for survivors of sexual exploitation and human trafficking, prevention for the vulnerable, and engagement for you. Our programs are located in Cambodia, Thailand, Haiti, and Haiti, where with about 200 international staff, we help girls find healing, hope, and freedom. Rafa International also works in prevention to see that children are not exploited to begin with. We do this by educating families and communities, providing after-school programming, and providing a one-to-one sponsorship program for children to have access to education, medical care, and food for them and their families. So Rafa House, um, I I first heard about them a lot uh, when I was in school because they would come and talk about their program and what they would do. Um, I mainly was familiar with their safe house in Cambodia. Um, there's a huge problem all over the world. Uh, human trafficking is a huge problem and it's very terrible. I think last time I was talked about it, like, uh, as far as illicit business goes, um, human trafficking is 
just behind drugs and like the amount of profitability it is for the entire world. Um, so it's a huge problem. It's a particularly huge problem in a lot of um, Southeast Asian co- countries, uh, particularly Cambodia, uh, that country with uh, the Khmer Rouge uh, in the 70s, 80s, where the communist government wiped out all the uh, intelligent people, killed thousands upon thousands of people. The country's been struggling to kind of get back up on its feet ever since then. And so there's an incredible amount of poverty. And the the thing that's different uh, about some Eastern culture as opposed to Western culture is here um, it's expected that parents provide for their children, whereas in Places like Cambodia, it's expected that children provide for their parents. And so uh, what these traffickers will do is they will drive out to uh, the country where there's an incredible amount of poverty, uh, and they will go to these families and they'll say, hey, if you give us your daughter, uh, we will take her back to this karaoke bar or this restaurant in the city where she can make money and she can send money back to you. And so the families agree to that and they take the daughters and so they, they, they take them into the cities and they put them in these businesses or these, they're really just fronts for these businesses and uh, they prostitute them out to the customers that come in. And the girls don't really have a lot of recourse because they're incredibly young and not sure what to do. And these traffickers are intimidating them and saying, uh, you know, we we paid for this taxi that brought you two hours to the city. It's an expensive taxi. You have to pay us back. Or if you don't do that, if you try to leave and not pay us back or anything like that, you're gonna you're gonna experience bad karma, and you're gonna and your family's gonna have bad karma because of what you've done. And uh, that's like a that is a legitimate tactic that they uh, use to lure these girls in. And so it's just an, it's an incredibly sad, it's a terrible situation. I mean, I think I remember one time they said that they've had a girl as young as four years old come into Rafa house's safe house. Um, so yeah, what, what Rafa house essentially does is once, uh, non-corrupt local authorities are able to investigate, uh, these businesses and find out that there is sex trafficking going on there, they will, go in and raid the place and rescue these girls out. And they'll take them to places. Rafa House isn't the only place that does this, but they'll take them to somewhere like Rafa House. And at, at this pro, at this essentially is these girls will receive medical care. Um, they'll get education. Um, they're taught how to sew and do various other jobs um, to, to make certain things so that they can have a means to make money for themselves and money for their families. And it's a way to, so that they don't have to go back into um, trafficking. They don't feel like they have to go back to that route to make money. Um, and Rafa House is a Christian organization. So they're also um, showing them Jesus and loving on them in that way as well. So that's something to be aware of. They also have um, a, a, uh, an online shop. I, I know they have a physical store. I, I think it's still on Main Street here in Joplin. Uh, but they also have a shop uh, where you can go and you can buy like t-shirts, hoodies, um, dresses, handbags, purses. And a lot of them has been made by these girls uh, in 
and it'll it'll tell you like who made it. Um, it's been made by these girls in Cambodia or Thailand or Haiti. And when you buy those items, you're uh, giving money essentially directly back to um, these women. Um, or you can just donate uh, on their website to them in general. But uh, Rafa International, if you just search Rafa International or RafaHouse.org, or you'll click on the link that I put in the description, uh, you can go there to donate to this amazing, 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 wonderful organization. Um, okay, so we did that. Um, going back to uh, my uh, drink review session real quick. Get that out of the way, and then we can get to the uh, the main portion of the podcast, which I am not telling you about. I'm trying to keep you uh, in suspense. But today, I am drinking. It's called Health Aid Kombucha, and it's the mint limeade flavor. And I don't know why I'm struggling so much to get this cap off, but it's a huge bottle. I know a lot of people don't really like kombucha, or however you say it, but I didn't really like it at first. I am a huge fan of it now. If you don't know what it is, it's a very hipster drink. It's fermented tea. And I'm going to try this mint limeade flavor. I really like that. I really like it. Uh, I don't know how else to describe it. It's kind of It kind of reminds me of a mojito. Um, I actually was reading that, like, uh, this... Essentially, the equivalent of America's FDA, it was Canada's FDA. They were going around and testing kombucha in grocery stores because it is fermented a little bit, and it's it's not supposed to have a high amount of alcohol, but there is um, a slight amount of alcohol present. Uh, but they were going around in stores and they were testing kombucha that had been like placed in various parts and if it was sitting in the front of the shelf or the back or wherever and they were just trying to get like an accurate reading on uh how much fermentation was in there and some some ones that they were finding were like eight percent like eight percent alcohol which is more than a lot of beer like it's it it's just i think that's funny because you could go in there and you're just like oh i just want like a little drink and then you get like a little buzz off of it and it's not funny if you're uh, someone who's trying not to drink or whatever, but yeah, uh, I'm not, I don't know. It's, it's good. I, I don't think a lot of people would like it. It just, you know, it tastes like mint and lime, but still, it's just got like a very, uh, I feel like every kombucha I've had, it's just like the, the acidic kind of fermented part of it is so strong that it's hard to get to like the actual taste of it sometimes, but it's cold. It's refreshing. I haven't had anything to eat anymore, and it's gonna so and it's kind of filling on the stomach. Not anymore. Any, I haven't had anything to eat this morning. You can tell. You can really tell that it's been a long time since I've done this, but that's okay. Um, so that tasted good. All right. Uh, I didn't really. I just wanted to do one of these again, just to do them. But I didn't want to rant or just talk out my butt for. <laughs> For a lack of a better word, um, so I I may have talked about this before, but in college, uh, I w- one of my majors was English, and within that major, I had an emphasis in creative fiction writing, which essentially means I just took enough creative fiction writing classes to have 
that emphasis go on my degree or whatever, or I can put on my resume. But um, what com- what comes with that is I actually have like I, I th- my creative fiction writing classes were uh, my favorite classes in college pretty much because all I did was just get to write stories and it was cool because it's like how the class was designed is you would write two stories a semester, which isn't necessarily a lot, but I mean, there was other things that you would do in between, but you would write two stories a semester and everyone in the class would do that as well. And when it was time for your story to be done, uh, there would be like, everybody would read it and then we would discuss it the next day in class and talk about what we liked about it, what we didn't like about it, but what we thought was working with what we thought was working with it, asking questions to see like what they were meaning and being like, okay, well maybe you could clarify this or that. Um, so there was, so I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I, I wrote a lot that came out of, um, out of that class. And I was talking to Hannah Kinsey, who I've, uh, mentioned many, I feel like many times before on this podcast, she's my biggest fan, by the way, shout out to Hannah. I was like number three on her most listened, uh, Spotify podcast for the year. So kudos to Hannah, but she was saying that I have like a voice for reading. That might be just her opinion. I don't know if that's true or not, but she was like talking about podcasts where they read stories for like people to fall asleep to. So, I mean, I guess if you fall asleep to this, you can. I I don't necessarily want you to, but um, uh, I have some of my short fiction. I doubt I will get to read all of my stories um, on this episode. I might save some for a later time. Um, But I'm just going to read them to you today and just try to provide something different. Hopefully you enjoy them. Hopefully you don't. I, I don't know how you're going to feel. I don't know how this is going to go. This is going to be weird. This is going to be different for me. Um, but you know, eh, I think it's important to try new things. So, um, I will read the story and if I feel like talking a little bit about it afterwards, I probably will. Um, but, and I'm not sure how, uh, when I have to read for like different voices or different intensities, I'm not going to, I'm not sure if I'm going to try to like adapt to it, like a voice actor, or if I'm just going to read it just kind of plainly. Um, but yeah, you get the idea. I'm probably over explaining all this way too much. So let's just get down to brass tacks. Um, I'm going to, my first story that I'm going to read to you, it's not the first short story I've ever written, but it is it does come from the one of my first creative fiction writing class, and it's it's one I'm particularly proud of. It's I feel like it's the first short fiction story that I I have finished. Not not necessarily the first one I wrote, but the first one I feel like is complete in it of itself. And I, maybe sometimes I see there's things that I would change to it, but I, I for the most part I'm pretty satisfied with uh, what it is, uh, and I've. Yeah, okay, so, sorry, I needed a drink. Um, so, I'm gonna, let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, this one is called Helter Skelter, and if you, no, I'm, I'm not going to explain it yet, but yeah, it's called Helter Skelter. 
The thing you have to understand, you see, is that the family room sits in one isolated corner of our house. Usually I'm the only one that comes down there to do anything. Lauren is most likely studying or doing something else dumb for school up in her room. Mom and Dad are either reading in silence or watching a talk show in bed. I say all this because the way our family operates has always allowed me to retreat to the family room. I couldn't bother anyone and I couldn't be bothered. I was able to watch whatever I wanted as loud as I wanted in total seclusion. Seclusion found in my sanctuary from this outside world. I was so distraught that I needed to just shut off for a little bit. I needed to let my mind take a breath. I soon found myself sitting on our black leather couch in the family room. My hands stretched out before me, holding the hard plastic of the remote control, the portal to numbness. Images flashed on the screen instantaneously. Cold blue light cut a path through the carpet and bathed every off-white fiber as it slithered across the floor and up the couch. I remember wondering that night a lot about that room and how we put it together. Not my family room, though, and not my family. Back then, way before my existence, I thought it all had to be tilted in a certain way. If you sat down anywhere, maybe you might be faced somewhat toward the fireplace to feel the warmth kiss your cheek and to dazzle at the sporadic dance of the flames with each crack of the feeling logs. But most importantly, you'd still be just tilted enough to face the center of the room, along with the rest of the furniture and patrons. This would have, been the optim- this would have to be the optimal arrangement to stimulate conversation. Now, furniture only faced whatever wall you wanted to watch scattered pictures set to boisterous sound go by on. That was the focal point of everything going on in the room. That was what commanded attention. Sometimes I think it's like our version of the fireplace. Even if no one is really watching anything, you can turn on that blank screen to provide some sense of light and ambiance to the whole setting. Preferably, though, you sit facing towards the thing by yourself or with anyone else. It doesn't matter either way. Not a lot of talking can usually go on in this moment, but that's not the point anymore. This is why I was all the more startled with what I heard next. Hello. I snapped up and looked around, awakened from the sleepy trance I had lost myself in. The dark room was empty. The rectangle of light remained, but it was not set to any particular channel. Black and white speckled spots intermingled and dispersed from each other in my gaze. The continuous scratch of static bit the air. I thought I must have been imagining things again. Hello. It was a soft voice that spoke. There was something eerily calming about it. I looked around the room again. I peeked over my shoulder and I spread the white blinds in the window behind me. I could not see very far out into the black of night. There was something out there I still feared. Something I was afraid that had come back to torment me. But I knew this voice was different. I knew this voice didn't belong to my childish nightmare. I soon realized that it wasn't coming from anywhere behind me, but in front of me. Hello. The voice retained its soft tone, but reverberated louder and clearer over the static scratch that filled the room. I said hello back and was met with a long silence. The flickering spots spots kept flashing intermittently to an erratic pattern that my eyes made a futile attempt to make sense of. I felt shackled to the couch. No matter how much I told my legs to stand me up and take me out of there, the invisible change wouldn't let them. Hello. Don't be afraid. It was talking to me. The screen hanging on the wall. The voice was surely coming through the popping speakers. 
I want to talk to you. It was a voice of innocence, but the serpentine hiss of the static echoed an opposing aura. Without any further notion from me, it began talking continuously. I didn't say anything. I couldn't. I sat and listened. My sight never broke from the wall in front of me. My expression was sedated, completely lacking any distinction of emotion, despite an innate disbelief as to what was happening. All at once, like the flick of a light switch from the annoyed finger of a parent who's been calling you to get up for hours, sunlight strained through the blinds and cast a shadow of parallel silhouetted bars on the carpet. The screen was blank. I didn't remember turning it off. I had only vague recollections of a soft voice in black and white. Had I simply fallen asleep on the couch and dreamt the whole thing? Or was it an unfortunate reality? It seemed too surreal. Too distinctly abnormal, supernatural even, that it had to have happened. I was certainly not imaginative enough to make this up on my own. My gaze fell and fixated on the shadow created by the sunlight pouring through the blinds. The silhouetted bars assimilated a disconcerting image. My left hand, rested on the leather arm, became tense and gripped the couch's edge. The bars looked like a jail cell. This wasn't the first time I had been troubled by a shadow. When I was a kid, I always thought something was following me. Everywhere I went, I was just so sure that I could feel this presence, this lingering gaze that watched my every movement. If I turned my head over my shoulder just quickly enough, I would always see something dart out of sight. A shadow. A shadow that hid behind the corner every time I looked back. Stop being silly, Mom said to me. She said I was just turning my head so quickly that it was messing with my eyes and the blood in my brain. But I swear, Mom, I swear there was something there. She wouldn't have any of it. But I knew. It looked like a person. A living silhouette. And it was following me. I tried drawing it for her. I didn't have the vocabulary skills to effectively communicate what was causing me to in constantly grab for her hand and try to get her arms wrapped around me every time we stepped out of the safety of our home. She wouldn't pay me any attention. Everything else I drew went up on the fridge, but that picture went straight into the trash. But even as an innocent child, so graciously blind to how the world works, I still figured out a way to keep the shadow away on my own. I just always had to turn around. I had to turn my head quickly, and I had to do it everywhere I went. As long as the shadow knew I was aware of its presence, it would stay back. There was always some corner to hide behind or some crevice to slither away in. Then I started get getting older, and I started to think playing with my Stormtrooper action figures was a little too kiddy for me. Started to be more conscious of how I looked every day, and I started to worry about all the flaws and imperfections in my ugly face that I inspected routinely in my bathroom mirror. And as I wished and prayed that the disgusting accumulation of blood and pus would just go away because I started to look at the girls at school more. I thought that I liked looking at the girls at school, but they wouldn't like to look at me. Studying the tile floor each day became an unwanted subject in my schedule. In between every class, dirty white squares with a few black ones aimlessly placed here and there along the hallways occupied my vision. I didn't want to look up. 
I couldn't. There was absolutely no way. My heart pounded at the cell of my ribcage enough as it did. I just couldn't let people see me. If anything, I felt like I was doing them a service, protecting them from disgust. So I kept my head down, kept my eyes on my feet as they shuffled to and fro on frivolous errands to be taught what was soon forgot. I spent so much time looking down that I started to forget to turn my head and look over my shoulder. And then I thought that maybe mom was right. Maybe just the turn of my head caused me to see some dark flash in my eyes. The gaze didn't feel like it was there anymore. The idea of the existence of this shadow stalker seemed so absurd to me, so I kept my head down. But then I got even older. And there was this one time where I was driving my black Honda Civic and I was listening to Mad World on my way to school. I sat sat at a stoplight for what seemed like an eternity. I enjoyed the moment so much. Time was always slipping away from me. It was nice to exist in a moment where I felt like I could just breathe. But then I started thinking, I don't know what happened. There's just sometimes you're sitting there and all of a sudden you start thinking. You remember something about your past, some oddly specific detail that occupied a good part of your life back then, something that seemed so important at the time. It throws you off because it's not a part of your life anymore, but you remember how it felt the way you did when it was, if only for a moment. It's just I started thinking about the shadow again, and I thought that maybe I had it all wrong. What if everything I convinced myself of was a lie? I knew that every time I turned around, the shadow would hide. That was the strategy. That's how, that's, that was how I protected myself. I know it didn't want me to know that it was there, but I, had, but I had stopped turning around. I was spending too much time looking down. My defenses were shut off. What if the shadow knew that? What if the shadow started to get closer to me? The next thing I knew, I was in class. My chin rested on the dark-stained wood desk. My arms were crossed in front of my face. I was staring at my clear mechanical mechanical pencil that teetered on the edge of the desk. One slight movement and it was going to fall. Could have been from me. Could have been from anybody. All it took was something to push it over the edge. My ears began to pick up at the sound of Mrs. Blah Blah's voice as she droned on in her lesson. She was talking about the Donner Party, which must have been some aside on Western expansion. The tone of her voice changed as the word cannibalism gravely fell from her lips, almost as if to intentionally provoke the looks of disgust and exclaims of disbelief that emanated from the rest of the class. I picked up my pencil from its suicidal slant and began to doodle across the light blue lines of the piece of processed white notebook paper. It was the one thing I was never able to leave behind in my childhood. Drawing, that is. My sketches were as simple as they were stupid, but the action of my free hand across paper was the only thing that brought solace to me at the time. The condescending discussion towards history's actors can tend to plague the classroom. What a bunch of judgmental jerks, I thought. Put yourselves in their shoes for a second. You're stuck in the snow in the mountains. It's the middle of winter and you don't know how long you'll be there. The food is running dangerously low. There's no animals to hunt. The lady in the wagon next to you that prayed so fervently around the fire last night is dead this morning. You're becoming unhinged. The burning cold and the stabbing pains in your stomach and the fear copulating with the anxiety welling up in your chest won't let you think straight. 
And you know that if you want to stay alive, if you want to get out of this, you have to do something you never thought you'd do. Other people are doing it. They seem fine. How far would you go to survive? My diligent note-taking produced a cartoonish sketch. Two disheveled pioneers sat around a campfire. A flexed bicep had been speared on a stick above the tiny flame. How do you want yours? Medium rare. I chuckled at the macabre. The bell rang, and I was relieved of thinking about what was the best way to skin and cook the muscle underneath us. I was still a little in shock, too, about the car ride. How did I even get to school? Mrs. Blah Blah's class was right after lunch. Almost half a day gone. What happened during any of it? I'm not a person who forgets things. I'm a person that likes to stay completely in control. I regained some sense of control by looking down at the white and black tile until the seventh period bell joyously rang, signaling the end to another arduous day. Before I knew it, I was back in the comfort of mundane, suburban existence. Mom wasn't there when I got home. Neither was Lauren. She must have taken her to soccer practice or whatever extra crap she's always doing. That was the thing that always separated Lauren and I. She always wanted to do something. She was always on the go. The soccer team, Model UN, choir, Stuco, etc. Sometimes it felt like ever since she was born, she was driven by this magnificent force of will to do anything in the world. Nothing seemed like a challenge to her. She could do anything she wanted to do. She was a conqueror. Me? I wasn't exactly sure what I was. I never really felt the need to do anything. It was so aimless. I felt like at any time I could be any person I wanted to be, but I never had the motivation to carry it out. Sure, I liked some things. I liked to draw, but I knew it was foolish to try to make something of it. The house was eerily quiet without anyone home. Dad was going to be at work for a few more hours. Who knew how long Mom and Lauren would be out? The hum of the AC was audibly dominant over the stillness. It was just weird. I think it was because at that moment I was starting to realize just how bombarded our eardrums are all the time. There's always something sending out sound waves. Something stimulating. This is where it began. That strange night. This is what pushed me into the family room. I slowly made my way up the stairs to my room. My feet trudged on the off-white carpet steps like they were walking through a muddy pit that wanted to swallow me whole. I didn't know what to do. I made my way into the adjoining bathroom that I shared with Lauren and stared into the smudged and spotted mirror. A couple of the light bulbs above it and one in the ceiling fixture were burnt out, giving the whole bathroom sort of a gloomy tone as faded light and shadow mixed together. It was off-putting, especially to Lauren, but I quite liked the dreary mood. I stared at the person I saw in the mirror. How could I have looked like that all day? God, I'm so ugly. Where did this even come from? Glad I didn't have to talk to anybody today. Or ever. Loser. All these criticisms and more possessed my mind as I looked into my own eyes. My insecurity spun me into a vicious cycle of draining thought loops. My behavior was driven by shame. I didn't have any control on how I was presented to the world. Nothing I did could change that. I stared straight into my own eyes. But at the same time, they weren't mine. I thought they seemed unfamiliar, strange and foreign in their stare. I didn't recognize the person in front of me. 
It was like they were wearing this unhappy mask, as if nothing in the world could lift their spirit. But it was so similar to my face at the same time. And I stared at this person for what seemed like a few minutes. Then I heard a knocking on the second door of our shared bathroom, the door to Lauren's room. I guess I had locked it, but I really don't remember doing that. She must have been back from debate team or whatever the heck she was doing anymore. Before I let her in, I looked back at the stranger in the mirror, and I looked to see if he had a shadow that followed him too, but there was nothing back there, and he still seemed so unhappy. I talked with Lauren for a bit about but about what I don't remember. Don't get me wrong, I loved my sister. I mean, I still do, but I rarely care about what she has to say. Before long, I snapped out of the trance and found myself sitting on the edge of my bed. The sheets are black and the walls are white. Mom and Dad asked me if I wanted to paint them. I still haven't decided yet. I have one window that faces the street in the front of our house, but all I could see out of that night was black, except for the little piece of concrete sidewalk that the lamplight illuminated beside our house. It wasn't enough. I knew the shadow could be anywhere in in that encroaching darkness. I couldn't believe how late it was. Dad had been home for a while. He must not have wanted to bother me, or he didn't even realize I was there. I had been staring at the stranger in the mirror for well into the evening. An exhale of relief came from the realization that at least whoever that person in the mirror was, they couldn't see me anymore. I wished I could say the same for the shadow. Not long after that strange night, I started having this recurring dream. Unlike my own life, it was too orderly. It didn't jump around like most dreams, but it still left me wondering what the heck was going on every time I woke in sweat-soaked sheets. I was always lucid enough to know I was dreaming, but I couldn't do anything to stop what was going on. A part of me was driving me where I didn't want to go, like I was possessed or something. The dream always started out on this ranch. I stood among a crowd, all of them smiling, their eyes wide with anticipation as we waited in the cotton-mouth-begetting desert air. The ranch looked unkempt and worn down when I first glanced at its structure. But then I looked again, and the scene beheld a white chapel, like one of those simple chapels you always see in the center of a town in a classic western. A man came out of the chapel with a woven basket in hand. Each of us formed an orderly procession and approached him. One by one, we gathered in communion. Our daily bread was a tab of blotter paper that beheld the face of that cartoon mouse you always see on Saturday mornings. A bitter taste stained my tongue as he placed the tab in my mouth. Soon after, another man came out of the chapel. His long black hair fell over his bare chest. On his back, he carried a wooden cross. We parted like the Red Sea as he shuffled his way between us and followed him out of the confines of the ranch into the desolate wasteland. Everyone was still smiling, but they remained quiet in reverence as they followed their Savior. I stared at his back as we traversed the land. Sometimes I would see it bare, sometimes I would see deep lacerations that spilled blood all over the ground. He groaned as if the wooden cross kept shoving splinters into the cuts. He winced in pain with each limp in his step, but at the same time, it all felt too rehearsed. His cross seemed too light to be a burden. Finally, we made our way up to the top of a hill. The man who gave us our daily bread erected the cross between two rocks. 
He took rope and tied the long-haired actor's limbs to each fitting position, but he did not hang there. He did not struggle for breath as a crucifixion commands. The rope became long, rusty spikes in our hallucinogenic eyes. A crown of flowers lovingly placed on his head became a crown of thorns beaten deep into his skull. The followers began to mourn as the actor cried out in faux pain, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As the words fell from his lips with each drop of imaginative blood, the tears of the mourners turned to tears of joy. They began to celebrate and praise this man, transfixed by his performance. It was all just so entertaining to watch. I was the only one that seemed to notice the familiar hiss of static that coiled around the whole scene. Its source came from a forked tongue that almost unnoticeably flicked in and out from under the shadow of a rock by the cross. The man who had given us our daily bread nailed a paper above the actor's head, and on it was our proclamation, our gospel, helter-skelter. I was feeling even more disassociated from reality at school. I walked with my head down, but my mind was too busy to be occupied by the dirty floor in front of me. My shoulders must have been bruised from how many times I was bumped into. I didn't feel anything at all. There was nothing I looked forward to. I even stopped drawing during lectures. I couldn't focus on it. I was getting lost in my own head incessantly, and each time I did draw, I always ended up writing what... I always ended up writing what was nailed on the cross somewhere in the picture. Helter Skelter. The moment my foot crossed the doorway, I turned and went straight back into the family room. No one was home again. I thought I was going to be able to figure this thing out. I stood in front of the screen and mashed the plastic buttons on the remote. I turned it on, I turned it to a channel, I turned it to another channel, and another one, and then I turned it off, and back on, and off again. I went to any channel that was just static. Nothing happened. The only voice came from the characters that popped up as I mashed buttons. I was surprised. I couldn't make it out at first, but I soon realized that it wasn't a relief to not hear this voice. I wanted to hear it. I wanted to know that it was actually happening. I trudged my way up the steps to the shared bathroom. There was nothing I could do. Nothing was going to happen. I thought I was going crazy. But in the sense that sane people think they're going crazy to provide some comfort over randomness they can't explain, I thought I was safe. The stranger was back in the mirror again. The faded light of the bathroom cast a fitting gloom over the sadness and the disturbance on his face. But he didn't move. He just stared right back at me with a face that looked so much like mine, but I knew his wasn't real. Why are you always wearing this mask? I asked him over and over, but he never said anything back to me. What was he really hiding behind those unmoved lips? What words might he spill that would make help make any of this make sense? I grazed my cheek with my fingers, and the stranger did the same. It was all just an imitation. The mask, the fingers. Was he just going to imitate me until he became me? A loud rap on the door and the sound of Lauren screaming to be let in so she could use the bathroom brought me back to reality. When did Lauren get home? And I don't remember locking the door. It was well into the evening. I felt so uncomfortable. It was like there was this pressure in my chest that kept getting stronger and stronger. 
My breathing quickened its pace, but no amount of oxygen brought me any relief. I couldn't focus. I couldn't think straight. I would have done anything to make it go away. The blue light absorbed my being. The remote sat in my hand. I was finally feeling somewhat comfortable on the couch as I stretched my legs out and rested my head on the arm. I didn't care what I was watching. It was just nice to feel distracted. Hello. My eyes flickered open. I didn't know what time it was. Black and white flickered on the screen. Hello. It spoke the same soft voice. The hiss commanded my attention. I want to talk to you. I was listening. I want to show you the world. I want to see the world. I can't tell you how many times I sat up and listened all night. It was happening almost every night. A stream of perverted bedtime stories. There were very few occasions where I was out of the house and it wanted to talk, but I could always feel it calling out to me somehow. I wasn't sleeping. I was too restless and so fidgety that I couldn't stay still enough to do so. I didn't want to sleep anymore, though. I just wanted to hear what it had to say. You'll never be beautiful. You'll never look like anyone I show you. Look like the people I show you. Then you'll be beautiful. By this, you will be happy. You'll never be good enough. Do all these things like me, and then you'll be good enough. By this too. Then you will be more happy. Feel. Don't think. This is how this works, and this is how that works. This is the right way. That is the wrong way. My way is the right way. Violence makes you special. It showed me the world, or at least the proper view of it. That's the best I can explain it. I started to understand how things work, and I started to believe everything it told me. Though it was bleak, though it told me things that made me hate everyone and everything else, at least it was the truth. It doesn't get better as you grow up. It just doesn't. Don't let anyone ever tell you differently. Lauren and I were constantly fighting. Well, she yelled and I took everything in my days. Mom actually expressed some concern for her other child. But when she persistently asked Dad to do something about it, he finally diagnosed me with just a phase disorder. I tried to act the same way as I did before. Before all this happened. What was going on in my head now was off script. I thought about things I never thought about before. They were always breaking in. I had urges I never thought I'd have. It didn't matter that I stopped drawing anymore. It writhed on the walls at school for a second before it went away. When I reached for the handle on my car, I would see it. When I ate my cereal, I saw it on the table underneath. It was always helter-skelter. It was always written in blood. I don't think I can ever really know what the actor's gospel meant to him. I know it meant a lot of different things. I remember watching an interview once. Behind the bushy beard and the scraggly long hair and the wild eyes was the declaration that it was all an illusion. That it was all made up. It's all pretend. I got more and more upset. My mind kept going to dark places. Then I thought that darkness was just my reality, a cage for my sentence. Then it all came crashing in on itself. I was driving home. I knew it was behind me, the shadow, 
sitting in the back seat of my car. I saw it in the rearview mirror. It didn't move. It wasn't going anywhere. The stranger was sitting in the driver's seat. Why was he always wearing that mask? There was a jogger not too far ahead. My car lights painted his figure. I remember my hand strangling the steering wheel. I felt this urge to push my foot all the way down on the pedal. I imagined the roar of the engine as the car soared on. I imagined the jogger's body tripping and rolling under the wheels. I imagined the blood that would blanket the road. I saw helter-skelter spilled out in red. I snapped back to reality and swerved at the last second. The jogger flipped me off and let out a steady stream of curses as I passed him by. I couldn't believe what had almost happened. I didn't understand how I could ever do that. Why Why I would ever want to do that. Then I realized that this is what it wanted me to do. The shadow and the stranger, they must have been a ploy. Get me riled up, get me scared, get my guard down for the real threat. It didn't matter. I had let the flashing black and white come in and I had let it take control. I didn't want that anymore. I didn't want to be the one shut off. I wanted to be in control. I came to a screeching stop in my driveway. No other cars were there. No one was at home. Helter Skelter was written all over the house. And then it wasn't. And then it was. I went inside and the walls were painted in faded blood. More lightly orange in its shade than a fresh red. It had been there all along. It had all spelled out. Helter Skelter. The only surface that wasn't touched by the words was the flashing black and white on the wall. It was there, just waiting for me in the family room. I could see the cold blue light slithering on the blood-stained floor in its transparent glow before I entered. Hello. I want to talk to you. Stop it. Just shut up. I don't want to listen to you anymore. I want to talk to you. You don't control me anymore. I won't listen to you. I want to talk to you. Just shut up. Just shut up. I reached out and grabbed the edges of the device. I strangled its throat. It felt good. I yanked and I screamed and I pulled till it tore from the fixture in the wall. The cord ripped out, but the black and white kept flashing in my eyes. I was crying so hard. My hands balled into fist. I threw it down on the floor before me. Helter Skelter still clouded my vision. I had to take back control. I started fighting. I fought what had taken over and made me live in fear. My hands pounded against the glass over and over, but I felt no pain. It didn't feel like it was going to break. No matter how hard I pounded, it was still alive. Tears kept streaming down my face. I felt someone grab my shoulders and shake me. I remember the blinds were all the way up and the morning sunlight poured freely through the window. I remember you couldn't see those silhouetted prison bars on the floor anymore. Dad was yelling and shaking me. Mom and Lauren clung to each other in fearful tears. I sat slouched on aching knees and my gaze fell down on the floor. I saw it completely destroyed. There were shards of glass. Excuse me. There were shards of glass and bits of metal and switchboards all over. The whole thing was covered in blood. My blood. The cuts, numerous as they were, 
ran deep into my hands and arms. You could see the pinkish white of bone through several of them. My hands retained a limp shape, as if a hammer had smashed them. Helter-skelter was stained in the carpet beside me. They told me later that I was fighting it the whole night. said I was lucky Mom and Dad and Lauren were there when they were. I was so close to bleeding out. Now I'm here and I'm telling you this from an uncomfortable plastic chair among these bland gray walls and magazine-littered tables. I'm sorry for bothering you, but I, I get so nervous waiting to go see the doctor anymore. I guess I'm just trying to be more open about this kind of stuff. Huh. I guess we are actually making some progress. I'm still adjusting to life on the outside. Excuse me for a second, though. I'm going to go ask the receptionist if she can turn that thing off on up there. Been nothing but static on this whole time. The end, I guess. Um, yeah, that's the end of Helter Skelter. So, what do I want to say? When I wrote this, I was really, really into serial killers at the time. I was watching, I was learning a lot about the Manson murders. I was watching Mindhunter on Netflix a lot, which is a fantastic show. I know a lot of people don't know about it, but anytime people I know watch it, then they love it because it's all about these guys in the 70s and 80s who it's based it's the the show's not a true story but it's based off the fact that like during this time uh these guys started the behavioral science unit at the FBI where they would go around interviewing serial killers they came up with the term serial killer and the show follows them interview like got like actual real serial killers not in the show, obviously they have actors portraying them, but they talk about like the crimes they do. It's so dark and gritty and I, but it's so well done. And it's, it's just interesting to see like the depths of, um, depravity that people can go to. And the, and it's the fact too, that it's like they, they do these things and that they admit that they do these things. And then they talk about them like so casually. And some of them even admit how like gross what they did was, but they're still just like, whatever you know it's just like it's just another thing um so and i i had uh i'd watched donnie darko around this time too and so that was a lot of the heavy inspiration for uh this story i think what i was trying to get at with it a big thing for me was the the symbolism of the colors black and white because i was thinking a lot about television and media at the time of writing this and to me, in that moment, it felt like a lot of what I was seeing and a lot of what is shown, it's it's very black and white. There's not a lot of nuance in what you watch. There's not a lot of gray in between. It's either it's this way or it's that way. And um, the talking about how like television makes you compare yourself to others and like. Uh, seeing like how it's just like this disconnection between like the beauty of like you see something on TV and the the reality of the the dirtiness and the grittiness of the real world and I I didn't necessarily think I th I was just thinking of it as more of like a story format I wasn't 
trying to portray this, but uh, there was a guy in, in uh, who's studying to be a med student, and he was incredibly smart. Anything he like knew so much. Anything he said in that class, uh, in, in my creative fiction writing class, he was saying that uh, without me even really realizing it, I had wrote about uh, someone developing schizophrenia or experiencing schizophrenic-like symptoms, and so he was the one that kind of suggested more more not the the ending scene with with the doctor and uh talk and he was telling in my original ending it just ended at the doctor's office but he was like uh to make this more full someone with schizophrenia you know their their hallucinations just they don't just go away and so that's why i inserted the thing about the tv having static on it again and um the dream, the dream sequence. I don't think a lot of people understood just because they didn't know. I'm, I don't like to spell out my references and allusions in my work. I want people to, if they know it, they know it, and if not, you know, hopefully it, it prompts them to look, uh, look stuff up. But, um, the the dream sequence with him taking the acid with these people at the ranch and following the guy dressed as uh, Jesus. That 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 is. Um, an, an allusion to what uh, Manson and his family would do on their ranches. They would trip together and um, he would reenact the crucifixion for them. Um, and I, I, you know, it's, it's no wonder these people followed him and, and did what he said and uh, his gospel being helter skelter, the supposed race war that he used the idea that he used to get his followers to kill the people that they did. Uh, but like he, that's the, and that's why uh, I say that like the actor says it's all pretend. It's all, it's an all illusion. It's all just in an entertainment. Um, it's because like Manson did later say in prison, he, he just made helter skelter up. He didn't actually believe it. It was just a pretend kind of thing. And I was using that, uh, and so the fact that like there's this always this present hiss of the snake um, and the forked tongue that they see at that uh, this this narrator sees at the crucifixion at this reenactment it's uh, try I was trying to connote the idea of uh, the ser- the serpent being Satan and Satan being um, the father of lies he can only lie and so trying to make um the lying and the entertainment synonymous with each other and maybe maybe i've over explained it um but i because i i know it's not perfect i know that you can't necessarily get all of that just from a first reading of this but i you know i'm i'm still really proud of this story uh definitely um i'm glad that i was i wrote it um how much time do we have? It's, I don't want to... I don't want to uh, go over on the... on the uh, time... I don't know what I'm saying. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to find a shorter one to do next. Why? Where? Oh, here it is. Okay. Uh, so this is a shorter one I w- wrote in my later class. Um, 
one of my later fiction writing classes. Um, this one, uh, the premise of it, not necessarily the premise, but uh, we had to write a story that bounced off a poem or a line from a poem or something like that. It had to do with poetry and you had to incorporate that poetry into uh, the story somehow. Now I'm not, I, I do like some poetry, but I'm not the biggest fan of it. I, I don't, I really don't understand it a lot of the times. I don't know what to look for in poetry. I don't know what to get out of it. So that's something that can be quite difficult for me. Um, so in, in trying to find a poem for this, I feel like I sort of cheated in that I took a poem from one of my favorite movies and really used the movie and the movie and the poem together to sort of say what I wanted to say with this story. And it's not my favorite. I know it's not perfect, um, that I've written, but I, I read it the other day again, and I, I actually really liked it, uh, this time reading around. So, uh, I'm going to get a... Could drink. Oh, oh, that's good. Oh, that is good. Okay. Um, this is called "Who Is the Blameless Vestal." It's funny how people will exaggerate the beginnings of a relationship to no end, but will downgrade the termination of one to a minute detail, a worthless footnote in their book. They'll say in the beginning some cliche with their own nauseating twist, like, it's as if the stars aligned when we touched and every choice we made was leading up to this moment on Destiny's Road. But then Destiny never gives them any point-by-point -point directions. And when they've run out of gas and hit a dead end, they're both telling the unlucky friends left to console them something like, I can't believe how trivial the argument was that ended it all. Oh well, better off without them. Now, I know I didn't do anything like this when I started dating Tracy. I never said our meeting was anything magical or perpetuated by some cosmic force because I'm cursed with remembering every detail of that precisely undestined moment. I went to the Pine Street laundromat on February 26th because my machine was broken and I was just shy of three quarters to finish up my last load of whites in the dryer when I let out a heavy sigh, and Tracy was finishing unloading her underwear in the machine next to me. I was trying not to look at her because I saw a black lace bra in her basket, and I knew I couldn't look at her without picturing her in the bra. But my heavy sigh over my dilemma gave me away, and she asked me what was wrong. I looked at her, and I told her I was out of quarters, and that's when I realized how beautiful she was. She was wearing a dark blue ball cap with her brunette hair tucked behind her ears into a messy bun. No makeup covered her snow-white complexion with a lone mole on her left cheek. And she was dressed in a gray zip hoodie and black leggings that molded to her thin frame with old Birkenstocks to top it all off. She gave me three quarters and that's how we met. Nothing more to it. I thought the great thing about a meeting that's not special is that the parting isn't either. And I thought that would take a lot of emotional weight off the whole ordeal. I knew the argument we had on November 15th, almost nine full months since we met, five since we said I love you to each other, and four since we decided to live together. 
was a stupid one to begin with. I knew that neither of us were capable of letting go of our pride, so we turned a trivial argument into a serious one. I knew just the right thing to make her storm out because I knew just how much it hurt her. I didn't, however, know that she would have the final word in the argument. And no matter how hard I tried to convince myself, the whole thing didn't matter because it wasn't special to begin with. I can't help but feel ashamed and alone. What movie do you want to watch tonight? I asked Tracy while I was staring at my lackluster pile of DVDs on the shelf. I like owning DVDs because they're physical, and the spotty internet in our apartment was only a hindrance to any streaming service. I don't care, hon. You pick tonight, said Tracy from the kitchen kitchen as she unboxed our takeout from Wu Pang's palace. I could smell the teriyaki chicken and steamed vegetables from the living room, and I figured she wasn't being apathetic about picking a movie by the tone of her voice. She really wanted me to pick. Of course, I still knew there was were wrong choices to pick for a movie with her, but the wrong choices for her were often the right ones for me. How about, I said as my fingers rifled between the DVD spines before resting on a favorite dark blue colored one, the same dark blue as the hat she wore to the laundromat, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. What? She called in a confused, questioning tone from the kitchen. You know, the one with Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet? where they erased the memories of their relationship. I opened the case and was looking at the shine of the DVD's backside facing up at me when she walked into the living room with our plates. Not that one, babe. That one makes me too sad, she said. Too sad? I looked at her. It's a rom-com. You like those, and this is one I like. It's not romantic, and it's not funny, she said as she set the plates down on our wooden TV trays and took her place on the black leather love seat. Let's watch Sleepless in Seattle. I just saw it available on Prime the other night. Fine, I moaned as I sat down next to her. It's obviously not fine, Tracy said in a teasing manner. It's just, you asked me to pick a movie, so I picked one of my favorites, and now you want to watch something else. I sounded pathetic, but usually sounding pathetic got me my way. I'm sorry, babe, she said, but it really does make me sad. She should have just left it at that. I would have conceded, and we would have watched Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan engage and endorse the ultimate relationship cliches, but she didn't. Isaac, I just don't get why you like sad things. She looked at me with worry in her green eyes. I don't like sad sad things, I said in defense. I like good things. My movie is good and yours isn't. Excuse me? She was upset, Not because I was dissing her favorite movie, but because I was basically saying she was stupid for liking it. I'm sorry, Trace, but I just don't think Sleepless in Seattle is a good movie. It's all about how there are all these signs pointing to your soulmate and everything's hunky-dory in the end and it's so cheesy. It gets relationships all wrong. Oh, and eternal sunset, eternal sunshine, I interjected. Big mistake. Her face was starting to get red. Eternal whatever gets everything right. Two people go through an entire relationship, erase it from memory because it didn't work out, and then decide to try the whole thing over when they meet again because their love brings them back together. Yeah, it doesn't sound cheesy at all. Tracy sat with her legs and arms crossed and turned her whole body on the love seat to face at me. That's not the point, I said, and you liked it when we first watched it. That's the way it was. Don't deny it. I was pretending to like it for you, she said. 
We had just started dating and you built it up so much I couldn't let you down. Trace, I remember. I said, I said, you loved it. You loved it because of the poem it was inspired by, remember? I wanted you to see it so bad because you had just told me how much you loved poetry. Oh, really, she said accusingly. Yes, I said. She had forgotten the lines she had gushed over. I had to remind her. How happy is the blameless Vestal's lot, the world forgetting by the world forgot, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, each prayer accepted and each wish resigned. Yeah, uh-huh, she said. That's from Eloisa to Abelard by Alexander Pope, right? Eloisa, who, in being seduced by her creepy teacher Abelard, commits an affair with him, and he forces her to join a convent to protect his reputation, but she still writes to him about how much she loves him. The idea that you think I would like something so sexist and misogynistic... Oh, I forgot, I interrupted, pressing my hands to my temples in an exaggerated manner. How could I ever forget the feminist critique you ruin everything with? Forget? She let out a satiric laugh. You never let me forget anything. Every mistake I ever make, every momentary lapse in my flawed memory, you're right there to correct me. I don't do that. I was lying stupidly. We both knew I did that. Okay, well, I'm sorry that I remember things exactly as they are, that I remember the truth. Truth? She pressed. You mean your truth. Even if you do remember things exactly as you saw them, it's still how you saw them, how you interpreted what happened. I interpret based on what actually happened. We were both standing now, circling each other like wild dogs ready to pounce. You're acting irrational, Trace. Well, I'm sorry I can't be rational like you, Isaac. I'm sorry I can't live up to your perfect, precious, rational standards. I'm sorry I can't remember every little detail like you, and I'm sorry I can't lord it over you like a complete dick. Oh no, wait, you do that. There was some banging on the floor from the neighbors below us, but neither of us cared. You want to know something, Trace? I was pacing back and forth, breathing heavy. You want to know why I like sad things so much? Because that's the way life is, and I embrace it. It's sad, and it's messy, and almost nothing ever happens the way you want it to. You want to know how I know that, Tracy? Because my brain never lets me forget a single thing. And if you took all the crappy things that happened in my life and put them next to all the really good things, they wouldn't even come close to balancing out. So forgive me if I'm a little irritable with you sometimes. I'm the only one that has to deal with reality all the time. I can't just forget like you, and I can't look on the bright side because statistically speaking, there is none. So which side am I on, Isaac? Tracy was standing still, her face bent to the floor. What? I was completely thrown off. Am I on the crappy side or the good side of your life? When she looked up at me, a tear rolled down her left cheek, resting just above her precious mole. I was too absorbed in myself to notice her pain, though. Don't make this about you, Trace, I said. Which is it, she pressed. Are you happy being with me? Tracy, I said with a sigh. You were happy in the beginning, she said, her voice beginning to choke. We both were. We both know that. But Isaac, you got distant on me. You stopped getting excited about things. You stopped talking. 
I did everything I could to try to make you happy, but nothing worked. Is all this because of me? I didn't want to keep going. I didn't want to work things out with her in that, argue, in that moment. I was being selfish, and I just wanted the night to end. So I borrowed an argument from one of my favorite movies to win the battle, realizing I was stabbing my ally in the heart to end a war we both lost. You know what, Tracy, I said. You're trying to play the victim, but I don't feel bad for you because I know no matter what happens, you can just go out and find some guy to sleep with to make everything all better. Isn't that how you deal with everything anyway? Isn't that how you get people to like you? I I may never forget anything, but the look she gave me when when I said what I said was branded on my heart, a permanent reminder of the pain I caused, of the jerk I am. I can't believe I loved you, was the last thing she said to me before slamming the door and going to stay with her sister. I couldn't believe she loved me either. It's been 56 days since Tracy walked out. It was four days after our fight when she and her sister came to gather her things while I was out at work. She left her key on the DVD player. She hasn't spoken to me since. For 56 days, I've played that night over and over again in my head. Neither of us were faultless, of that I'm sure, but the scale of fault tips to my side. It's not like we walked into that night with a perfect relationship. We knew we needed to make some repairs, but what we had was still salvageable. Maybe I didn't throw the first punch, but I made sure to get us both knocked out of the ring and hang up our gloves for good. In any case, she's better off without me. Who is the blameless Vestal? Who can go through life without some residual shame weighing them down? Whose mind isn't clouded by what they've seen and done? Sometimes I blame it all on my photographic memory. I blame it all on the curse of knowing my experiences, good and bad, with bad being the more common, to their fullest extent until the end of my days. Sometimes I wonder how good it would be to be born with an average mind that can be healed by age. Sometimes I wonder if electroshock therapy could actually make me sane, make me able to forget the wrong I've done and the wrong done to me. Is that what it takes to experience the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, a medical procedure that could cure me by probably making me a vegetable, just shy of joining a monastery? It might be my best bet. The end for that one, too. Um, Yeah, I don't really have a whole lot to say about that one. I was kind of just writing it just to, like, get the assignment done uh, when I first wrote it. Um, Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't really know what I have to say about that one. Um, I think we may have time for one more, hopefully. If not, I might have to just cut this off and then, like, do, just put, do, like, a part two. And if I do a part two, I guess I could do reading some more, um, do, do another story along with it. But, uh, this one is actually kind of different because this wasn't, I didn't do this one for a, uh, a fiction writing class. This one I wrote as a part of a philosophy class. And I'm pretty sure I've mentioned it on here before, but I had a philosophy philosophy class about the meaning of life 
and it was just answering the question, what is the meaning of life from a variety of viewpoints um, that we and that we looked out throughout the semester. You, we were using different philosophers and belief systems, and as a part of the class, we had a, a, a project, a creative project, where we were supposed to take three different philosophies and pit them against each other over this question of the meaning of life. And somebody was, they were supposed to, it was supposed to be walked away with like one picked out over the others and as to why. And so I chose to write um, a short story at, using three different philosophies. And uh, this is what, this is what came out of it. Um, this is fallacies and foibles. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. Josh Tillman had to remind himself this to keep from stumbling on the asphalt. Guardrails and highway markers were a friend to lean on for the drunken wanderer. And I swear I don't have a gun. Josh Mumble slurred his way through the lyrics as he brought the nearly empty bottle of Evan Williams up to his lips and pulled the fire down his throat. At this point, the whiskey lost its fire. It was water for a thirsty soul, but it could not satisfy the parched flakes of his being that yearned for a reason, any reason, to go on. Besides, of course, more whiskey. A glint of moonlight caught the corner of Josh's eye, as he crested an overpass. He turned to look at the pond that sat off to the side of the road, reflecting the night sky and its stillness. Josh, finding that no car had passed him by for quite some time now, reasoned that this quiet spot on this overpass was the right one was the, the right one to stop on for a while along his journey down in sobriety. Come as you are. He continued to sing as he yanked his blue tie from its Windsor knot and unbuttoned the top of his white shirt to let his neck breathe. As you were, Josh took another pull and watched his left hand as he did so. As I want you to be. He wiped a bit of dribble off his lips and looked at the gold band around his ring finger. Memoria. Josh sang over and over again as he rubbed the gold band with his forefinger and thumb of his right hand, toying with its, with its orbit around his finger. What it was, what it meant, everything he thought was destined to become a memory. And this was another one, one far more painful than the last, another log to fuel the burning coals of disappointment and misery that defined the life of Josh Tillman. He turned his eyes up to the water and found that he had pulled his wedding ring from his finger and held it in his palm. He thought he must look like Gollum holding the ring in this way, but the one ring was everything to the creature. This ring, and all it had symbolized, repulsed Josh. He needed it gone, never to touch his finger again. He closed his palm and drew back his arm behind himself, and with a loud grunt, he threw it forward like the fastballs he threw in high school. The splash he was waiting for never came. Instead, it was the faint clinking of metal on asphalt that reached his ears. 
Josh looked down and found his ring sitting beside his scuffed brown shoes. The dysfunction between his brain and limbs caused the ring to slip between his fingers, rendering the forceful throw, like most everything that occupied his time these days, meaningless. Of course, Josh groaned as he knelt down to pick up the ring. As he brought himself back up, his eye caught a shape of neon light that reached through the tops of the silhouetted trees off the highway. Josh didn't know how far he'd walked, but it was long enough to finish off the bottle he held. He figured he had made it a decent ways outside of civilization. He screwed himself over on this front. That he knew for sure. Sooner or later, if he didn't pass out on the side of the road... He knew he'd have to find some way to get home. Home. A motel room was probably going to be his home for the near future. He'd come home from work in the evenings to a room of land walls and some campy landscape painting done over a mattress that God only knows what's been stained deep into it. But Josh looked back down at the ring in his hand and was reminded again of the end he had come to. More serious and detrimental than a crummy motel room. He placed the ring back in his pocket and began walking. Josh saw how the road bent to the left around the grove of trees that the neon light had shone through and figured it would lead him right to the source, and hopefully a phone of sorts. His own he had thrown and smashed earlier in the week during a fight. It wasn't anything out of the ordinary, the smashing or the fight. It had been a routine for him for a while now, but he never thought the routine would end. After a few stumbles and grumbles, the source of the neon light revealed itself to Josh. It was a lone sign that stood in there, illuminating the gravel lot and the ramshackle structure beneath it. The fluorescent pink tube, surrounded by a blue tube that outlined the sign, read fallacies and foibles, next to a green martini glass. He let out a hearty laugh. Stumbling upon this bar was the first stroke of luck he had in a long time. When he entered... Josh paid no attention to the decor that hung on the wood panels of the wall or the patrons dressed in various attire that would make one think they had stumbled upon a costume party. He instead walked straight forward to the bar and addressed the bartender who had his back turned. Can I get a whiskey? Neat. Everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact. Everything we see is a perspective, not the truth, the bartender replied, his back still turned. Um, sorry? Josh, in his confusion at the peculiar peculiar response to his request, began to notice the long white robe that draped the bartender and the laurels perched on his ears. The bartender turned from wiping out a chalice and stared at at Josh. The soul becomes dyed with the color of its thoughts, he said. Are you going to a toga party or something later, Professor? Josh chuckled at what he thought was a clever jest. The bartender said nothing but stared. Give him some wine from my vineyards, a man called from his stool down the bar. And put it on my tab, Marcus. The man was dressed in regal robes and wore a gold crown upon his dark curly hair. Thank you, said Josh to the man. Uh, But I'm afraid I'm not much of a wine drinker. The man got up from his stool and walked over to Josh. One sip of my wine and you'll say differently, my friend, said the man as he clasped the shoulder of Josh's gray suit. 
My, the clothes you people wear will never, your people wear will never cease to astound me. He took a seat next to Josh and sipped his wine. The bartender set down a smooth metal chalice and poured a deep maroon liquid from a wineskin into it. He passed it to Josh, who then raised his chalice along with the strange man. Salud, said Josh. L'chaim, said the man. I have to say, I think this is the best wine I've ever had, said Josh after his first drink. Are you Jewish? An inappropriate question one asks after several or many drinks that Josh had. I am Hebrew, the man replied. My wine is made from the finest grapes grown in my vineyards outside of Jerusalem. Oh, I get it, Josh slurred. Jerusalem and the whole get-up, you're some kind of king from the Bible, aren't you? The crown is a nice touch, very realistic. It's always the same with men like you, the man replied. You all come from the same place you never believe. You will never believe until you see. The man pointed to a window on the wall to the opposite side of Josh. Go see. Josh thought he'd play along. He was drunk enough after all. But, we, but when he carried himself over to the window, the lone stretch of road he walked on that lay on the other side of the glass was no longer there. He saw a full moon and a sky of stars on the clear night cast over a sprawling city of clay and stone. Lamplight illuminated the windows in a spread of square specks across his gaze, and men garbed in tunics passed by outside along the street with several goats in tow. It was this scene that sent Josh sprawling backward, tripping over his heels and finding his gaze directed at the ceiling. The man moved into Josh's view and extended a hand. Usually they catch themselves. Josh grabbed his hand and was pulled to his feet. He noticed a pain in the back of his head and began to rub it. Marcus, uh, some ice please, the man called. Quite a tumble you had there. What is going on? I can't be this drunk, Josh said desperately. You seem quite drunk, said the man, but you are seeing what is real. You are in a place that exists in many places in many times. The man took a cloth wrapped and, tie, wrapped and tied over a handful of ice from Marcus and gave it to Josh. Thank you, said Josh as he placed the ice on his head. So this is like some Rick and Morty type stuff, huh? Sorry? Never mind, said Josh. So who are you? I am Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. May I ask what you're doing in this bar, your majesty? I enjoy stopping in from time to time. The wives can be a bit burdensome. What brings you here, my friend? That word, wives, brought Josh out of the strange reality back to the one he wanted to escape from. He pulled the ring from his pocket, placed it on the bar, and began to fiddle and twirl it around in a careless manner. I came here because I have nowhere else to be, said Josh. You seem greatly troubled, Solomon replied. Well, that tends to happen when your life becomes devoid of meaning, said Josh as he finished his wine. Ah, Solomon said as he brought his hand up. Marcus, another round. Marcus returned with the wineskin and filled their chalices. Solomon turned to Josh and asked, Do you wish to know something, friend? What? Everything is meaningless, said Solomon. Well, that's comforting, said Josh in blatant sarcasm. Well, it's the truth. 
What do people gain for all their labors? We work and work all our days, engaged in our various projects, and for what? We all will be no more one day. Solomon took a drink. But how can you say that? You're a king. You govern a nation. You're the ultimate influence in thousands of people's lives. How can you say that your life doesn't have meaning? Ah, but my rule comes to an end, does it not? Solomon gestured a hand to the patrons around the bar. Josh looked and saw the men from all the time around and began to understand the words of the king. All the people I ruled will be gone. My nation will split and fall. Much of our history will be lost to time. What will my purpose have been? The wise king's words weighed heavily on Josh's mind, almost as much as the depressant effect of the alcohol had brought on him, onto him. The look on his face was one of agreement. It couldn't be otherwise in despair. And whatever you throw yourself in, it will be meaningless, Solomon continued. Believe me, I have done so myself. Pleasures, wisdom, toil, wealth. Solomon took a drink. But we are still human. That is something we can't deny. What do you mean by that? We do not have one single experience. We do not exist only in despair. There is a time for everything. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to weep and a time to laugh. All these things come to pass and come again in the course of this life. Solomon clasped, clasped a hand onto Josh's shoulder. It is best, friend, that you find satisfaction in your work, because that is the hand we've been dealt, as I believe your people say. That's correct, Josh said with a frown. If only I could find satisfaction in my work. Nine. That will not address the real problem with your condition, said a voice from behind the two men. Josh and Solomon turned to face a man in a black coat and vest over a white shirt, bald on top of his head with wild white hair on the sides and equally white sideburns that extended across his wrinkly face. Right on time, said Solomon. How goes it, Arthur? Overcoming this life as we all must do, Solomon, replied Arthur as he took a seat at the bar next to Josh and extended a hand. Arthur Schopenhauer, Josh Tillman. Josh took the firm hand and shook. Marcus, pour two glasses of the Doppelbock for myself and my fellow prisoner here. Prisoner, Josh asked. Here we go, said Solomon as he sipped his wine. Yes, replied Arthur. Marcus brought over two glasses of the dark beer, almost pure black in its color, topped with a creamy foam to the men. Our lot in this life, Solomon, is a prison. Arthur raised his glass, and the other two followed suit with their drinks. Cheers! The Chaim! Prost! The men drank, and then Arthur continued to elaborate. Our purpose is to suffer. All living beings suffer, emotionally, physically, and mentally. It is widespread and integral to, integral to life. If there is a meaning of life, it is to suffer. Aren't you two a ray of sunshine, Josh smirked. He could not help but smile despite what he was hearing. The Doppelbock was cold and enjoyable, refreshing his palate from the fruity taste of the wine. There is some hope yet, chuckled Arthur. The only consolation is that others have it worse than us. Someone always does, Arthur, interjected Solomon. 
and someone will always have it better than us, and we come to pass anyway. Are we not equal? Nine, replied the old man as he took a long drink. The best life is the one that's most free from suffering, and pleasure, one would think, can help achieve this. Unfortunately, that is not the case. Because pleasure is meaningless. I denied myself nothing I saw, and I found it all to be meaningless, said Solomon. Pleasure is the temporary secession of pain. It's a drug that alleviates our pain, but it does not treat it. You can take all you want, but the virus of suffering will stay within you. In the same way, adding pleasure to our lives does not take away from the suffering we have already experienced. We must instead strive to suffer as little as possible, said Arthur. I may, I may be too late for that, then, said Josh. Indulging in pleasure, pleasure doesn't seem too bad right now. He took a long drink and finished his beer. Marcus, bring another, Arthur called. Maybe so, Josh. But there is no need to seek out further suffering either. Which brings me to my main point. We should regard ourselves as prisoners in this world because we are all doomed to suffer. As such, we should treat each other with kindness so we do not add to the suffering of others and hope they in turn do the same for us. So basically, I should just be nice to people because everything sucks? Is that it? Can't say that's exactly a win for me. Josh took a sip from his beer. Remember, corrected Arthur, we all can't really win here, can we? Josh turned around on his stool and looked out at the bar. He began to take in more of the surroundings he had missed throughout the night. Renaissance paintings hung on the walls. Busts of history's influential actors were placed next to the wood columns that supported the structure. A group of men dressed in colonial attire entered the bar and sat at a round table and began a lively discourse in their English accents over life and liberty and other such topics. Josh wondered how in the course of an evening he could come to feel a sense of normality in this absurd situation. Reasoning, however, crept through Josh's thoughts as he began to realize that whatever sense of normal he felt in this place was just the come down from when he first entered. As he had become used to these conversations between people that existed long before he was ever conceived, the pain from the terror in Josh's heart grew in its presence. The disappointment and the anxiety he felt over his situation, over a season of life that shattered any hope he had left in the world, would not be so easy would not be so easily forgotten. And even as he sat there listening to the men talking back and forth, persuading him with their reasons as to why his life was doomed to suck, Josh found he could no, not distinguish between the two. His life was meaningless, or his only purpose was to suffer. Neither were a good outlook for him. At the same time, he couldn't shake the feeling that maybe they were both right in their respects. Maybe he should just resign himself to a bleak answer. At least it was an answer. A skinny young man entered the bar that caught Josh's eye. The young man had an air of familiarity around him. Josh got the sense he had seen this man, but he could not remember where. The young man wore a black shirt and had wild curly hair. Sunglasses sat over his eye, sat over his eyes above a lit cigarette that hung from his mouth. Excuse me. The young man proceeded over to a piano Josh hadn't noticed yet on a far wall and sat down at the bench. He placed his cigarette on the ashtray on top and began to fiddle a few notes here and there. 
He hasn't been in here in a while, commented Arthur. It's a good thing, though, said Solomon. He plays music almost as well as my father, and this place could certainly use some livening up. The young man took a pause from fingering single keys on the piano and began to play a few chords slowly here and there. Josh watched as the young man sat up, drawing a breath that would indicate a start to his performance. How many roads must a man walk down, he sang, before you call him a man? Josh recognized the unique voice from the folk records his father had played in his study many years ago. How many seas must a white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand? Josh listened to the lyrics from the song he had heard many times as a child, and for the first time in his life he considered a meaning. He wondered how often he was to toil, to struggle, to suffer in his life before he would come to his deathbed. And he wondered if he would be able to look back at the life he led and feel that it was worth living despite what he went through. He wanted to believe that was possible. Wanted, but could not. The answer, my friend, sang the man, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. The folk singer played through the song for a few more minutes, captivating most of the bar's patrons. When he finished, he closed the piano, grabbed what was left of his cigarette from the ashtray, took a drag as he stood, and walked out the door. As Josh's eye followed the folk singer out the bar, he caught a man sitting alone in the corner. The man looked eastern in his appearance. He wore a simple orange robe across his body and had his dark hair tied up in a bun. Josh watched as Marcus came from around the bar carrying a clay teapot and a cup on a tray to the man's table. He sat the tray down and poured the man a cup. Intrigued, Josh found himself making his way over to the man. Not many people come to a bar to drink tea, Josh noted. Do you mind if I sit? Please, implored the man with an extended hand. This green tea is quite refreshing. The man pulled another cup Josh had missed from the tray and began to pour the steaming yellow liquid to its brim. Try some, he said, as he handed Josh the tea with two hands. Thank you. Josh said in taking the tea. The inebriated state was fading and Josh was beginning to feel the first of its negative effects. The dry taste left in his mouth was one he could no longer stand. Josh sipped the tea and felt its taste sate his tongue and its warmth quelled the unease in his stomach. This tea is wonderful. Yes, it is, agreed the man. I know who you are, said Josh. You're the Buddha. The man closed his eyes and bowed his head a little before saying, Yes, I was once called Siddhartha Gautama before I achieved enlightenment and became the Buddha. You do look like all your statues, said Josh. Indeed I do, chuckled the Buddha, though I wish they wouldn't have been so generous with the size of my belly. For the first time that night, Josh felt a genuine sense of laughter escape his lips at the sight of the foreign man's joy resonating from his jest. You seem like the man I should be talking to, said Josh. And why do you say that? The Buddha asked. Well, you're enlightened, right? You should be able to answer what the meaning of life is. That is not what you need to know, replied the Buddha. What? Josh's whole face seemed to squint together with confusion. You do not need to know what the meaning of life is any more than a man shot with an arrow needs to know about the man who shot him in order to live, said the Buddha. 
The wounded man only needs to seek treatment to heal. This is not what I was expecting, commented Josh. Life is never what we expect it to be. Whatever your problems are, you must find the root of them. To do that, you must first realize that all life is suffering. You're saying the same thing as Arthur over there, replied Josh with a point back to the bar. Yes, but did Arthur tell you that there can be an end to your suffering? asked the Buddha. No, but how can there be an end? We're all destined to suffer, implored Josh. Our suffering is a state of unrest, a state of dissatisfaction, said the Buddha. We feel unsatisfied because we have desires. We can make attempts to fulfill those desires, but any fulfillment gained will only be temporary. So what can you do then? The cessation of suffering comes when you rid yourself of the, of the belief that you are one individual self in this place. You have no self. With a self, you have the same sense that the, de- that the desires you feel in life are your desires, and as such you feel an importance in fulfilling them. The cessation of the self will eliminate those unnecessary desires. How can this be? How can one get rid of the self? Josh found himself greatly intrigued at the Buddha's philosophy, never having heard anything of the kind in his life. His ideas were so foreign, uh, but Josh could not deny the compelling reason that fueled them. As he sipped his warm tea and listened to the Buddha's response, a flicker of hope illuminated a dark corner of his heart. To get rid of the self and break the cycle of suffering, you must follow the eightfold path. You must have right view. Right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Do these things together, and you will develop a sense of wisdom, virtue, and concentration. In doing so, the desires that weigh you down will no longer hold power over your life. It seems too simple, said Josh. Believe me, replied the Buddha, following this path is anything but simple. It requires a commitment to the path that you will make for the rest of your life, but it is worth it. Josh finished his tea and felt a sense of clarity wash over his being. He was regaining control of his actions, and his slur was becoming lost to proper speech. And despite the loss of the distracting glow the alcohol had brought to him this evening, Josh did not feel unease in his sobering state. That tea does wonders, said Josh. Again, thank you. The Buddha bowed in response. Josh looked around the bar and felt a stray thought that postulated just how long he had been in this strange place. Excuse me, said Josh as he stood from his seat and made his way over to a window. Darkness still lingered in the sky, but Josh's eyes began to make out the land that it covered. He saw a familiar road and a familiar gravel lot, and then he returned to the Buddha's table. You must be going now, the Buddha inquired. I'm afraid so, said Josh. Will I ever be able to come back? Oh, I imagine so, said the Buddha. If you need to, that is. Josh extended a hand. The Buddha took it and the two shook. Remember, Josh, added the Buddha as he parted. Don't get so caught up in the big questions that you can't answer. Take in what's happening out here he said with an extended hand, before bringing it back to a point at his head, not up 
here. Thank you, replied Josh with a bow. He made his way back over to the bar and thanked Arthur and Solomon for their advice and the drinks. Josh made his way over to the tip jar and left a few bills for Marcus before heading out. He turned around at the door and waved goodbye to his new friends and this bizarre, lovely place he had stumbled upon. Josh stood out on the gravel lot and looked down the road from from which he came. It was a long way back, much like the long path he would take for the rest of his life. But even though the path would be long and hard, Josh knew that he had the power, the ability to suffer no more. And with that, he saw no other option than to take the path before him. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. And the end again. Um, so I guess the thing that's important about this story is I, I, not that I necessarily agree um, a lot with Buddhism, but the 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 idea that we suffer because we can't fulfill our desires, I think I that's something that's very intriguing to me. And that's why I think it's important to make sure you align your desires with what is most meaningful and rational rather than temporary. And on, on things that certainly you you can, on things that certainly won't leave you with a sense of, such disappointment. And and obviously I think that's kind of um, impractical because you're going to be disappointed. You're going to desire things and you're not going to get them and you're, you're going to be disappointed. And that's, that's a part of life. I think, and I, I definitely think there's the mark is missed a little bit with that, but I, I do think it's interesting. The story um, that you, you know, and it, this comes from outside of this story is that like somebody did ask, ask the Buddha or it said that somebody asked the Buddha what the meaning of life is and told him it wasn't important. And you don't, you don't need to know what the meaning of life is to heal because, uh, you, it's not, it's you, that's not going to help you. I'm saying this wrong. The, the illusion that you're shot with an arrow and saying, why did this, this guy shoot me with an arrow? I need to know everything about why this guy shot me with an arrow. I'm going to go to this guy who shot me with an arrow and I'm going to find out everything about him. That's not, that's not what's going to save your life in that moment. The arrow has to be removed. You have to be treated for infection and the wound has to be closed up, closed up, uh, all that stuff is what needs to happen for you to heal. And I, I, I like the idea of, of um, putting aside these big questions that you get so consumed with in your head and realizing that, that and you can't come up with an answer to them. And the, and the answer to them is not, what's going to make it, I guess, feel better maybe would be a good response to that. 
so uh, between the three, I guess, philosophers, because we did look at um, between these three pitted against each other in this story, we did look at um, Ecclesiastes and the meaning of life class. We read um, an essay by Arthur Schopenhauer about why all life is suffering, and we we studied these first basic tenets of Buddhism. Um, I so surprisingly enough, I, I had Josh pick Buddhism as the way out for suffering for the story in particular, just because if you read um, Ecclesiastes by itself. Um, a separate from the Bible, just the book itself. It is a it is a very depressing book. Um, I'm, Ecclesiastes chapter three is probably one of my favorite uh, passages, just because it's all, got the, a time to mend and a time to uh, destroy and all, that kind of um, poetic writing. It's very beautiful and very poignant. Um, but by itself, the book is depressing, and it, it doesn't offer a uh, aside from uh, finding satisfaction in your work, it doesn't offer um, a lot of insight into how to deal with suffering and how to find the meaning of life. Um, Schopenhauer, from a humanistic standpoint, I really kind of like his. We should all regard ourselves as prisoners, and that's. But the but the idea that you should just treat yourself, treat others with kindness, so you don't add to their suffering. Um, you, you know, it's just like, it's doing it on your own goodwill. And the problem is, is that unfortunately for us, a lot of times someone else's suffering means our satisfaction. Um, just the way human beings can be mean like that. And I, I'm not even talking about in big ways. Um, just um, like, obviously um, in the world, a lot of people are like legitimately exploited right now, but like, you uh, say you're going through um, a tough time with a friend, like you and a friend are fighting, and you can do something to know that, like you like post a bunch about how you're hanging out with other people, and they can see that you're hanging out with other people, but they're not there, and they they feel bad, and you're and because you're in a fight with them, you're happy because you know they feel bad. It, it's it's just things like that. Um, that I think that's the problem with. Uh, wanting to just be kind to other people's on their own and try to not to add the suffering to others because of a lot of what you do can just add to suffering to other people in general and you might not even realize it. So, um, but I think too, I'm I'm definitely you've noticed by now that I've cut off before. I didn't. I wasn't planning very well about this. I cut off uh, before this uh, story began and did this like as a two part thing. I think I'm going to do one more reading um, just because I feel like it kind of ties in with the, uh, with this story a little bit. I feel like they kind of go together. Um, I'm going to do one more and call it quits for this, I guess now um, two part episode that I was not expecting to be two parts, but hey, oh, that's okay. Um, okay, so this is one that I was a- actually was written in um, one of my creative fiction writing classes too.
Sorry, I really needed a drink. Um, this one I'm probably going to have to talk about and explain a little bit. Um, I wrote this as, and I, I didn't signpost enough in the story, so I'm adding in signposts by saying now and then, so you know uh, when each scene is taking place, because I wrote this story to not be linear, uh, because I felt that's the best way to kind of tell it, essentially. Um, so, sorry, I got, I got distracted um, <clears throat> by a phone call. So it's not linear. Um, just keep that in mind, and uh, bear in mind that this story is about being unable to being unable to answer um, big questions. Uh, the story is called The Letter and the Spirit. Now, Sheriff George Gaines sat in a booth at the back of Connie's Cafe. He sipped what was left of the coffee. He always drank black from the creme-colored creme mug and gently placed it on the table all the while shaking his head lightly back and forth as he flipped through the newspaper to find the rest of the article. You want some more coffee, Sheriff? Darlene slowly hobbled over to George in her pink uniform and food-stayed apron with a kettle in hand. Just made a fresh pot for you. You work too hard, Darlene, he said as he looked at her over his reading glasses and folded the paper up and put it down on the table. Well, with this here gimp in my step, it's more likely I'm hardly working, she said with a smile and looked down at her bandaged right ankle. Yes to the coffee. Thank you kindly, ma'am. She filled his cup to the brim. How's that ankle coming along? Oh, it's not so bad. Doctor says if I just keep off of it, it'll heal up real fast. But that's a bit hard to do when you're waiting on old sheriffs all day. He chuckled. I reckon it must be. You'll be back on the horse before you know it. I sure hope so, she said. I do miss riding this time of year. It is a nice time of year for riding, he said with a defeated exhale that betrayed his sentiment. What are you reading there, Sheriff? Darlene pointed out to the newspaper with a pink fingernail that matched her uniform. Well, he said, opening it back up across the table, pushing his wide-brimmed hat out to the wall. It's just another one of them articles about them, that killer out in California that they can't quite seem to catch. That Zodiac or whatever? A spark of fear flicked in her eyes. Yes, ma'am. Not much for us to worry about, but you'd think what with all them letters and codes he sends, they would have figured out who he is about now. The sheriff adjusted his reading glasses and scanned down the page. You would think, she said. Still, it's just awful. A shame for those poor families to know he's still out there. It sure is, he said, reflecting the sadness on her face and his own. Can't say I ever read any good news in the paper, though. No, I reckon I can't say that I have neither. Not for a while now, and probably not for a little while longer. There was a pause filled by the sounds of clinking plates in the kitchen and the quiet morning chatter of Connie's customers. Your eggs should be done in a few minutes. You need anything else? No, thank you, Darlene. She touched him on the arm and gave him a look that he read as clear as the words on the paper. A slight tear perched on the corner of her eye. 
He nodded back to her, and she turned and hobbled slowly back to the corn, back back behind the counter and into the kitchen. George sat there for a minute and cupped his hands around the warm mug, all the while watching the steam curl up off the surface of his coffee and as it gently passed away into the air. He glanced down back at the paper, but the obits caught the corner of his eye, so he went ahead and closed it up back on the table. Then, Nancy Gaines stirred and rolled over in her bed to find that her husband wasn't there. She felt the weight of the years gone by on her bones as she pushed herself up and turned to rest her bare feet on the carpet. She let out a heavy sigh before she roused the strength to stand and pull the sheer curtains apart from the window to reveal the first light of dawn that stretched across the ranch. George's police cruiser sat in the gravel driveway next to Nancy's truck, where he had parked it the night before. Behind the wood fence, the Longhorn, beyond the wood fence, the Longhorn still slept in the calm of the morning. Even the neighbor's dog dared not disturb the quiet that had descended across the land with her rousing howls. Nancy turned and knelt with some difficulty by the bed. With her head bowed and hands folded as they lay on the soft mattress, Nancy recited the prayers her late father had once instructed her to recite every morning before she began her day. When she married George, Nancy began and continued to place particular emphasis on the end of the Lord's Prayer. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. She signed the cross over her chest and groaned as she pushed herself back up, this time catching the crucifix that hung over the bed out of the corner of her eye. Deliver me from old age while you're at it, she said, She added. Nancy made her way downstairs and found her husband sitting at the small round, table, round kitchen table with the morning paper covering his face. When he realized she was in the room, George folded up the paper a little too quickly and put it under his arm as he stood up and went to the stovetop. Morning, beautiful, he said with his back turned to her. Coffee's hot. Nancy sat down at the table. Morning, she said, and covered her mouth as she began to yawn. What you got there under your arm? Paper, he said as he poured her a cup. You going to call Grace today about when we should make it out to Houston? Yes. Why are you hiding the paper from me? I'm not. I, was, I sure hope we can get out there to see her soon. George, why are you hiding the paper from me? Nancy was never one for beating around the bush. George wasn't either, which made her all the more worried about his evasive behavior. George took a deep breath and brought over Nancy's monk mug to the table. No use in keeping anything from you, I guess, he said as he sat down and brought out the paper from under his arm. You know better than to keep nothing from me, she said. Second page, George sighed and handed her the paper. He watched his wife's eyes grow large with intensity as she opened to the instructed page. Nancy brought up a hand to cover her open mouth as she read the article. When she finished, she closed the paper and her eyes and muttered a prayer George couldn't quite make out, but he didn't need to. How could they print such a terrible letter? Do an awful thing like that and that makes it all and it makes it in all the papers. I know, but why did you hide this from me? Not like I haven't heard stories from you about killers before. Not like him. In all my years, I never dealt with a killer like him. 
Nancy observed how a few words on a page seemed to age her husband by a decade in a matter of minutes. The wrinkles on his forehead deepened. His hair seemed thinner and whiter than it already was. The sunspots that speckled his skin darkened in their hue. His breathing slowed and his body sat heavily and unmoved in his chair. What worried her the most were his sad eyes that gazed off into the distance, unable to meet her own. George, why does this man have you so upset? It's not like it's up to you to catch him. I know that, Nance. It's not that. Then what is it? Nancy waited patiently while George continued to avoid her gaze. Finally, he took a sip of his coffee and met her eyes. I guess I never bought into the idea that we're animals. People. You know, scientists will all say nowadays that we come from animals and we're animals nonetheless. I guess I always thought we were more than that. George paused to sip his coffee. But now, here's a fellow that's unafraid to write to the law, to toy with the authorities, to say that he likes killing people because it's so much fun. Says it's fun because man is the most dangerous animal of all to kill. Now I start to think that if a man like that can exist, a man who wants to kill just because he likes it, because it's fun, then maybe we are animals, just gnashing our teeth at each other. George's gaze trailed off into the distance, perhaps looking to a future he thought would hold more trouble than the present. Maybe we're worse than that. Now, Connie's scrambled eggs, smothered in green chili, were always a welcome guest in the home of a heavy heart, but the power they held in their simplistically pleasant taste could not subdue the stress that weighed on George's chest. Connie offered the meal on the house, but the sheriff, of course, respectfully declined and quietly, quietly left a generous tip. In the wake of tragedy, his enduring stoicism was a sight to behold. As he left the cafe and walked to his police cruiser, George spotted Julio Alvarez, Lucinda's boy, loitering in the parking lot and having a smoke with Jeb Daniels. George donned his aviators and leaned on the open door of the cruiser as he watched the two teenage boys, waiting to see if they would notice his gaze. The sight of Jeb taking drags with a cocky air conjured an image of his older brother, Ed. He was an arrogant Ed Daniels. He was an arrogant soul that got put away not too long ago for crossing the border with a truckload of grass to sell, and his little brother has had his own run-ins with the law. George's brow furrowed. Trouble was never too far from the likes of Jeb Daniels. Y'all head on over to school now, the sheriff called. The boys turned, finally noticing him standing in the lot. I'll be giving Principal Harris a call, a call to see you boys made it all right. George got in, started the cruiser, and turned down the road. Aware of but not acknowledging whatever snide comment or rude gesture the boys would have made behind his back as he left, he knew they would be on their way to school, and that's what was important, especially for Julio. Lucinda was a kindly woman known for active service in any parish function. She and Julio usually sat a few pews in front of George and Nancy during Mass. The thought of calling Lucinda up to tell her to come pick up her boy from the station was all but inevitable to George if Julio chose friends like Jeb, and that was a sharp pain in his heart. Despite his many years as a lawman, George never could handle delivering bad news.
then he had always admired the blue-eyed grass Carol Ann planted on her walkway, along with the contrast brought by the yellow petals of the black-eyed Susan that hung on the white picket fence of the Dunn home. Carol Ann had created a picturesque scene that led George to declare it was the only home in a confined neighborhood he would ever want to live in. Of course, that was a different time when he said those things. The rhythmic click of his boots on the sidewalk was slow in its tempo. A heavy heat sizzled the afternoon air, but George's brow coated, coated in sweat beneath his hat for the tumultuous season life had wrapped around his being. And as much as he wanted to endure the season on his own, he knew it was to spread to those around him. Even more so, he knew that his trials would not be the worst to endure among those inflicted, but the unfortunate duty fell to him to tell them so. George ascended the porch steps and heard the familiar shrill of Ava's crying in the home. He brought up his heavy hand and compelled it to knock on the screen door his wedding band making staccato raps on the glass resounding above Ava's wailing. Soon Carol Ann stood with her disheveled hair wafting in the open doorway as she held her baby close in an attempt to soothe her. George took off his sunglasses and hat, but before he had a chance to speak, Carol brought her free hand over her mouth. No, Lord, please no. I'm sorry, Carol. George's, George met her eyes that welled with tears. Carol Ann leaned against the open doorway and sat down with Ava in her arms, unable to stand no longer. George sat down and placed his arm around Carol, Carol Ann as she sputtered, Lord, please no, between each sob. Ava's wailing continued with an intensity that gave the sense even she understood her daddy wasn't coming home. George sat with the grieving family there for a long while and wept. Now, Grace was seven in the picture on his cluttered desk. She was saddled on a mare with Nancy on foot a hold of the reins. He made sure she knew how to ride as soon as she was old enough. The family spent much of their free time on horseback in the country together. He had been there to help her jump on the saddle when she could, excuse me, when she couldn't reach it, taught her how to calm her horse when it got spooked and picked her up and dusted her off every time she fell down. The picture always served as a, his reminder of why he did what he did, of the life he would come home to in the evening. But Nancy's hip wouldn't let her ride much these days, and George hadn't rode with Grace since the one summer she came home from college. George often wondered why he was still a sheriff, and doubted even more his ability to be one. These just came in for you, Sheriff, said George's secretary as she strode into his office and extended a handful of papers. It's the paperwork on that abandoned Ford we found out on the highway. Thank you, Betty. George took the papers from her and squinted through his glasses. I'll look these over and see what to do about this tomorrow. Betty walked out of the office and turned back in when she saw the station door open. Oh, looks like Father Gibbons is here to see you. Send him in, please, and you can go on home now, Betty. I'll close up shop tonight. You sure, Sheriff? Good night, Betty, he called, his eyes still on the paperwork. Good night, Sheriff. Good night, Father, Betty said as she left the office. Father Gibbons entered in his black cassock with a grocery bag under his arm. Good night, Betty, 
called back Father Gibbons. He turned to look and looked at George and pulled a six-pack of Budweiser cans from the paper bag. Want a beer? Didn't think you were allowed to drink, Tom. George looked up at his friend over the paperwork. We're Catholic, George. The two chuckled as Tom pulled a red and white can from its plastic holder and handed it to George. Tom pulled one for himself and took a seat across the desk. Each man pulled his tab, silently raised his can to the other, and took a long drink. Jacob was in my parish too, George. Tom looked across the desk at George, who fixated on the tab of his can, flicking it with the edge of his thumb and averting the concerned eyes on him. Couldn't protect our flock from the wolves. George looked up at Tom and followed with another drink. A lot of wolves out there, George. Tom took a drink. Jacob knew that, knew what being a guard dog meant, young as he was. Boy really did have an old soul in that reckless body, George chuckled. The two drank. You write in your eulogy? Tom asked. No. Lord knows what I'm going to say. You'll be all right. People are going to know what you mean, even if you don't say it right. George's restless thumb returned to the tab. Tom sat and waited while the faint clicking of aluminum on aluminum emanated from the brick wall that was George Gaines. You know, I ain't one for speaking in front of people, George said. That's your job. You're the sheriff. You made a couple public addresses, if I remember correctly. Even saw you on the TV once. This is different, Tom. The men drank. You know he served? George broke the silence. Got drafted in 70, didn't he? Barely 18. Barely graduated and he gets shipped across the Pacific to fight a war. What does that boy do when he gets back? He up and becomes my deputy, throwing himself right back into the danger. Wasn't any younger than we were when we shipped off to the Pacific to fight a war. I suppose, George took a sip and crossed his arms as he leaned back in his chair. We got a little bit better reception coming home than he did, though. Breaks my heart. Mine, too. Tom pulled two more cans from the pack and he handed one across the desk. George took the beer from Tom and stood up with the paperwork Betty had given him and scaled the file cabinets behind his desk until he found the proper one. He placed the paperwork inside and stood for a minute to sip his beer. Do you believe in hell? Are you asking a priest if he believes in hell? Tom studied the look on George's face and deduced from his unwavering stare that he was more serious than ever. Tom gave a hearty cough before he spoke. Yes, I believe there's a hell. What about you, George? George sipped his beer and stared at the wall for a second before turning to address his friend. You remember when they started printing all them stories about the Zodiac Killer? Of course. How could you not? You remember what his first code said when they finally deciphered it? George took his seat and brought his arms out forward on the desk. Can't say that I do. Tom took a drink. Said the best part of all the awful things he did was that when he dies, he gets reborn in paradise. Said that all the people he killed will be his slaves. George paused to drink. Now when I heard that, I just thought this fellow was all kinds of crazy. Then I had a terrible thought that maybe he was right. 
I mean, either he's crazy or he really believes with all his soul that he's going to heaven when he dies because he's right. He's not afraid of hell because it's not there for him. He can do whatever he wants. Tom leaned back in his chair and rested his head on a propped hand, giving no indication to speak as he continued to look at George. I know I'm not making any sense, George muttered. Nothing makes sense these days. He took another drink. Good young boy investigates a noise complaint. Gets shot through the door for stumbling on a meth house. Leaves behind a wife and newborn. Whoever shot him probably run out of town and might not ever get caught. Don't make no sense. No, it don't, Tom agreed. What good is following the letter of the law if it don't save you? If it don't save anybody? George waited for an answer, but Tom had none for him. The drugs. I tell you, Tom, sometimes I wonder if all the drugs in the world are just the devil's demons possessing people to do these awful things. Don't matter if it's the Mexican dope or Colombian coke coming through here. It's all bad news. Maybe so, said Tom. Maybe people just need to hear some good news for once. Maybe so, said George. Tom stood up from his chair and with the remaining cans at hand. Want another one before I head out? I think I've had enough. Am I going to be pulling you over as soon as you peel out of here? Tom laughed and walked to the doorway. He stopped and turned to face his weary friend. George, it ain't all up to you. The line of justice don't end at you, and it don't end here neither. Just got to do the best with what you're given and help others when you can. That's all you can do. All any of us can do, really. Then, oh, he taught me to love him and called me his flower that was blooming to cheer him through life's dreary hour. The scratch of the record and the twang of Sarah Carter's voice resonated at a tranquil hum throughout the room. Nancy was on the couch with her father's black leather Bible open in her lap to St. Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. Nancy had come across more than a few Bibles in her years, but the one passed down from her father would always be her favorite. She cherished every torn page, every underlined verse, every note scratched in the margins. But the one her eyes fell onto daily was the inscription etched onto the title page left there by her father's artistic hand. May the Lord's love letter to all mankind bring you peace and understanding to you in your days, my sweet flower. Nancy grazed the crop of wisdom the saint had sown onto the page with her spirit of humility and awareness to a force bigger than herself at work in the world. And within that awareness, Nancy began to sense a spirit apart from her own dwell in her body and guide her steps through the field. She walked with the spirit through the tilled soil until she came to rest upon a verse ripe for harvest. She reaped what the spirit had sown with the hands of the saint all those years ago, and stored her yield onto the pages of her notepad. The sound of footsteps brought Nancy's eyes up and back to the room. George stood in his khaki uniform, illuminated by the morning light streaming through the front door's semicircular window. The man she loved more than life itself stood with a hesitant air, 
before the doorknob, unsure of what the day held for him and how he was to respond to it. Nancy felt the familiar spirit tug her being and brought her hand to tear the inscribed page from her notepad. She folded the paper in half and brought it to her husband, resting the note in his hand now relaxed by the company of his wife's fingers. For whenever you need it, she said. George looked at the lovely face of the woman he explored the wilderness of life with and kissed her forehead. I'd be lost without you, my wildwood flower, he said. And don't you forget it, she grinned. Yes, ma'am. Now. Principal Harris was standing there with Julio outside the school when George pulled up in his cruiser. Principal Harris had one hand on the boy's shoulder and the other holding his backpack. Julio's head tilted down and away from the cruiser as George pulled up beside the two, his shaggy dark hair shielding his eyes from the lawman's gaze. Howdy, gentlemen, George said as he stepped out of the cruiser. He walked over to the rear passenger door and pulled it open. Julio, why don't you go ahead and get in? I need to have a few words with Principal Harris here. George watched as Julio walked with his head bowed into the back seat of the cruiser. The boy did his best to hide it, but the sheriff's keen eye caught the shiver in each of his steps. George didn't worry about putting the cuffs on the boy as he shut the door. He knew he wasn't about to try anything feeling that guilty. Mrs. Wilson caught him behind the gym, said Principal Harris as he handed George Julio's backpack, revealing a rolled-up paper bag hidden by a strap in his hand. George took Julio's backpack and set it in the second seat of the cruiser before taking the bag from the principal. He opened the paper bag and sniffed what he could already faintly smell. The familiar, pungent scent of the grass flowed freely from the bag's opening. Was Julio alone when Mrs. Wilson caught him deacon? That's what she said. She didn't happen to see Jeb Daniels running around? Boy hasn't been at school the whole day. The principal's remark caused George to let out a deep sigh. You call his mother yet? George asked. Was about to as soon as you picked him up. Well, sorry. Um, well, you take care of what you need here. George said as he walked around the driver's side, but I'll give her a call from the station. Deacon nodded in approval of the sheriff's remark and crossed his arms. That stuff's got no place in my school, Deacon said. Boy, don't neither. George said nothing but tipped his hat to the principal, opened his door, and drove off. He glanced at Julio intermittently in the rearview mirror of the road, and in the rearview mirror on the road. The boys' eyes were stuck on the dry landscape, sporadically dotted with cattle that passed them by outside the window. He may have kept quiet, but his heavy breathing and the perpetual shiver that grabbed a hold of his figure was all George needed to know how he really felt. George found that the guilty people only seemed to act one of two ways in the backseat of a cruiser. They either hoot and holler about how they were right and what they did, sometimes forcing the sheriff to subdue their outlandish pride, where they remained silent in contemplation of what led them to the backseat of a police car and beat themselves up all the more for it. Julio was rightly the latter, but George couldn't shake the uneasy feeling that stirred in him as he watched the young boy in the mirror, worrying about what was to come. You all right, son? George asked. 
Julio said nothing, his gaze locked on the free world outside the window. George drove for a while before speaking again. You know this stuff is illegal. You know what you did was wrong. No reply came. I know you know that. I know you're smart than the, smarter than that. George caught a slight shake of disagreement from Julio in the mirror. George turned off the road and got on the highway. Listen, son, George continued. I know that you've had a hard time. A lot harder than most. Must not be easy, what with not having your father around, leaving you and your mom to fend for yourselves. Julio shifted in his seat at the mention of his father. Mine wasn't around too much either. The job came to me to look after my mama and my brothers and sisters because I was the oldest. Of course, I was barely a teenager at the time. In the distance, George spotted a lone man on horseback crest a ridge, a silhouette on the horizon. The rider came to a halt, and as George closed the gap between them, another rider, much smaller atop their steed, followed behind the first. I know you're scared, son. I can't blame you. But you want to know something? I'm scared, too. Julio's eyes lifted to meet George's in the reflection. You never know when things will get worse and when they'll get better. Nothing's a guarantee. George signaled and took the exit. I don't know what it is you're looking for in this life, son, but I can tell you for sure you won't find it with this stuff going down this path. And you may think this path is what you really want or all you're cut out for, but that ain't the case. You let this stuff get a hold of you and you miss out. You miss what's going on around you. You change and not for the better. And years from now, you'll look back and think about what you missed out on, what you were looking for all this time. And it might be too late to go get it. It just might. Julio looked at the old sheriff as he spoke and felt a sense of peace among the storm of anxious thoughts that consumed his being. George drove on for a little bit longer before he turned onto a gravel road Julio recognized. As they passed under the sign that read Lone Star Trailer Park, Julio gave George a confused look as to, to which he returned a slight grin. Which one is yours, son? It's the one at the end of this row here, sir, Julio timidly spoke. The boy, the boy couldn't make sense of what the sheriff was doing bringing him home. George pulled in front of the Alvarez's dust-covered trailer and parked the cruiser. Here's what I'm going to do, son, said George as he turned to look at Julio over his seat. I ain't going to charge you with anything this time. Didn't, don't think it'd do you a whole lot of good to go through all that. But you take advantage of my grace, and you're going to be in a world of trouble, you hear? Yes, sir. I'll talk to Principal Harris and smooth things over with him. But you're going to go in there, and you're going to tell your mama what you did and that you're sorry. Yes, sir. You tell her to give me a call. If I don't get the call, I know, I'll know you didn't tell her. Yes, sir. George opened his door and grabbed Julio's backpack from the passenger seat as he exited the cruiser. He came around and opened the door for the, bo for the boy and handed him his backpack. Thank you, sir. You're welcome, son. As he watched Julio walk to the trailer, George pulled a piece of paper, 
folded in half and worn with age from his shirt pocket as he leaned on the cruiser door. He folded the paper open and looked up at Julio as he opened his door. Julio, George called. Yes, sir, Julio said, looking back. Do you know how to ride? Horseback? No, sir. How about since I'm letting you off, I'll come pick you up Saturdays and teach you till you're good and able. That sound fair? Yes, sir. Julio went inside and closed the door. George looked down at Nancy's artistic script. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. 2 Corinthians 3, 5-6 through six. So if you remember earlier, the story is called The Letter and the Spirit. And I, I think my big, my, my big idea, what I was trying to get at with this was, you've heard, if you've heard the phrase, the letter of the law, and then there's the spirit of the law. And the letter of the law is what is actually said, but the spirit of the law is what it's intending to get at. And I, I wanted a character, George, to... He, he feels so troubled and distraught because in the, in the world around him, in the big world around him, there's the Zodiac Killer who is killing people randomly and toys with the police authorities and remains uncaught in California. And he, and he sees this national news and, and he wonders how this evil is happening in, in his country. But then the evil in a, in a different form comes to his hometown and Jacob Dunn, his, his deputy is killed in a, a random act of violence. Um, and, and George doesn't know how to deal with that because these people, they aren't following the letter of the law and the, the letter of the law isn't stopping them. And he, he feels weak as the sheriff, as the protector of of his town because that he can't bring these people to justice these people are are getting away with these these awful things and he doesn't understand how can this evil exist how can there be such a thing as this law that is supposed to protect people from these things happening but in reality it doesn't and the, and this injustice is happening um and I, I I think what I was trying really hard to get at at the end there uh, with George um, recognizing it, and that Nancy is so I put put Nancy so well together is because and you, I talk a lot about her father and her father's impact on her and then you find out that Julio doesn't have a father and George didn't have much of a father. And I was trying to get at the fact that like when he's driving Julio home and he, he sees, um, he sees the horseback rider on up ahead and he can't make out who it is, but then he sees the smaller rider on horseback following behind him and, and George is having this sense of, 
the letter of the law right now isn't what's going to help Julio. It's the, it's the spirit of the law. It's someone leading him forward is what's going to help him. And that's why he, he makes that offer in the end. And uh, going back to the, the story previously beforehand, it's the whole idea of there's those big questions out there. And how do you deal with these big questions and these injustices that you can't answer? And it, it all comes back to what is, what is going on right in front of me? What is in my life where I can make a difference? And George can't answer in the, in the large, vague scheme the reason behind the Zodiac Killer's his, his methods and his motives. And he can't bring to justice the murderer of his deputy. But what he can do at the very least, is he can help someone who legitimately needs it. And he can he sees this kid who that I, I had Julio make the decision on his own apart from Jeb because it's showing that it was his own. Like, yes, he was influenced he had a bad influence of a friend, but he himself was making a bad decision for this time period for um yeah, and so that's why – that's kind of what I was going for with this. That's why um, George – I had George realize that he had to focus on what was in front of him and the difference that he could make and how the spirit of the law, he could use that to give life to someone, to to, to offer a chance of life that – they normally wouldn't have. Um, my voice is incredibly tired. Uh, I <clears throat> could feel it really faltering in that. But yeah, so that was some of my work. I am actually, I actually really like doing that. And I probably going to do that more in the future. But I think this is a good stopping point for today. So if you have made it this far, um, thank you for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed. I hope all you ladies, gentlemen, and cat people have a pleasant swell day. And if I could give you some encouragement um, in this moment, I I know that um, a lot of you, myself included, have a lot of big worries um, going on in your head. And it's, it's really hard to... Um, to not be distracted by them. And it's really hard to go through life when you know that you have these unanswered questions and these worries and concerns causing uh, you to feel so messed up inside, causing you to feel afraid, um, unable to, unsure of how to move forward in your life. And I would just encourage you to focus on what's going on around you immediately. Um, focus on what you, what you can control because there's the, there is this illusion of control for the, for the big things in your life and you, and you don't have that control. But if for, for me, I, I mean, I know that I have to focus on what I can control and just leave the rest up to the Lord. Um, and try to, uh, do that as seriously and po- as seriously as possible instead of 
just having this laissez-faire, um, do whatever I want attitude towards life, which is something I've been struggling with lately. Um, but I hope that I hope that's somewhat encouraging to you. And I hope that you have a fantastic day going forward. Um, God bless you everybody. And I will see you next time.